0: We start off by saying this: I love, I love Pastor, Jose. Pastor Jose. I'm going to tell you why I'm asking you. I feel better already because I guarantee you this. This message is going to be challenging. This series is going to be challenging. So, you guys ready? Yeah. All right. So, say this with me if you're ready. Say, I have ears to hear. I have eyes that perceive, and I have a heart that's ready heart that's to understand and receive the living Word of God. Amen. So today we are beginning a new series entitled Seven Letters. Seven Letters. And for the next several weeks, we're going to be examining the words of Jesus as dictated to the Apostle John when he was in exile on an island called Patmos. Now, John received the words of Christ during a timely season when the church found itself under great Persecution. It was under great pressure that was stemming from within and without. And this letter was written in the late uh, first century, approximately somewhere between 70 to 90 years after the resurrection of Christ. And the church, as I said, found itself uh, challenged by extreme pressures. These pressures served as the basis for many to turn on one another within the church, to succumb to pressures, to conform to outside influences and even to forsake Christ as Lord. And so these pressures were not unlike what Christians and people who believe in God experience today. Let me give you just some insight, just just to give you some some context for this, what was going on back in those days. In those days, trade guilds were uh, widespread. Uh, You might be saying, well, what's a trade guild? It's kind of like a union. Right? It was a labor union of sorts. And in these uh, trade guilds, what would happen is that uh, they were set up for people uh, by people to ensure that they could survive and make a profit in their field of trade. It guaranteed a balanced amount of business for all. But this created great pressures for many Christians because guilds were run by pagans who instituted patron deities that they believed blessed their trades. I'll give you an example of that. Uh, in, in the, in, uh, when Paul was in Thessalonica, he came up against one of these guilds who used to uh, make these images to the goddess Diana, and they, they went after him, right? And so everyone, including Christians back in those days, needed to be a part of these guilds if they hoped to work, if they hoped to survive economically, but because of their faith, many of these businesses wouldn't provide them employment. These guilds wouldn't accept them because they wouldn't participate in their pagan practices, which were out of this world. And, they, and many of them wouldn't even sell them goods. They also faced pressures from Jewish communities themselves. During Rome, uh, Rome's rule in these days, religious practices outside of Rome were restricted to their region. Of origin. So for example, if you were from Germania, you were allowed to practice what you believed in Germania, but you weren't allowed to practice it anywhere else, especially in Rome. But there was one exception, and it was because there were so many of them. It was Judaism. And so initially, Rome viewed uh, Christianity as a sect of Judaism, because it was primarily made up of Jewish people. But once they took note that Jewish leaders in all the synagogues were disassociating themselves from Christians, they viewed the early church as a rogue religion opposed to Rome's rule. Now, Christians, therefore, felt the pressure to conform to Judaism, to follow the law, to forsake the freedom that was theirs in Christ, to live by grace as opposed to by the law. And so they felt this pressure to conform to Judaism in order to avoid the threat of persecution. There was also the pressure of the Roman government itself. Over time, Rome uh, became more uh, uh, tyrannical in its approach to Christians and other expressions of faith as the era of empirical worship began uh, to become the norm. Not only did Rome demand that all the people in the empire worship Roman gods, they also began to demand that the emperor himself be publicly worshipped as a god. And so Christians were therefore pressured to worship false gods and lived under the constant threat of public torture and eventual death by way of persecutions, uh, being torched by fire, and many other forms. And then there was another pressure that they faced. It was wayward Christians. Because of the constant pressures, uh, many in the early church began to disavow Christ as they joined in pagan practices or followed after splinter sects that formed among the church that led many away from the teachings of Christ. Christians, therefore, felt a continual pressure to follow the teachings of people who were held in high regard who were many times their own peers. And so while the book of Revelation was written well over 2,000 years ago, and it speaks powerfully to the church in that day, it also speaks powerfully to you, child of God, today, to the world, really. You know, it's very concerning to note that just in the last couple of weeks, uh, we've seen the institution of agendas and policies that are created are meant to create pressure. They really are creating pressure. There's a threat to Israel once again as a nation. Um, And if you look at your script, if you look at the scriptures, don't take Pastor Jose for his word. Look to the scriptures. If you come against the nation of Israel, you are coming against God's promised people. That's a problem. So that's beginning to happen again. There's the promotion of taxpayer dollars for the advancement of abortions. in great measure again, there's an emphasis to normalize alternative lifestyles and uh, different things related to that. There's pressure in the world today uh, uh, on the world stage actually to normalize listen to this, you can research this. Don't go by me. There's pressure on the world stage for the United States and other countries to begin to lower the the, sexual, uh, uh, the, the age of consent for sexual consent. And the, the argument for the United States is you should do that because you're now allowing more, immigra- you're gonna be allowing more immigration than ever again and it's not fair for these people who come from these countries that this is normal for them to come here and it's not. Right? So listen, these things are happening. Don't take my word for it. And look, I, I'm, not, I'm not judging anybody but let's just look at it for what it is, all right? And then we're also beginning to see policies that promise to adversely affect the people of God, the church, people of faith, right? And so Christians in every age have faced pressures to compromise their loyalty to Christ in thought, in word, and deed. In many areas of the world today, Christianity is still an illegal religion. Faithful believers uh, have to meet in secret at risk of being arrested and in some cases even killed. And there's also the intellectual. There's also intellectual pressure. Secular scholars, friends, and family often ridicule uh, people of faith, uh, Christianity, as an ignorant religion that's contradicted by science. There can also be pressure to compromise our behavior and beliefs for the sake of succeeding in business, or to avoid unjust treatment in society, to be looked down upon. Now, the Book of Revelation addresses. All these kinds of situations. Listen, its message is that Jesus is Supreme King. And that he will return to make everything right. To clarify what is just, what is true, and what is correct. And when he does, it's, according to Revelations, he'll reward everyone that has remained faithful in the face of the pressures to conform in this world. So it's with this context that we begin our series by by studying the first of seven letters written to the early church. Today I'd like to talk to you on the topic, the loveless church, the loveless church. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Listen to the words of Jesus. He says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. He says, repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so I want you to consider something that, before, before we even dig into this, I just, I just want to show you something here that Jesus says, write this to the angel of the church of Ephesus. And that word angelos in the Greek doesn't speak of an angelic being with wings. It's literally speaking to someone who has been set aside and is in a high place of authority. Here's what Jesus is saying. Write this first and foremost, first, to the pastor of Ephesus. Make sure he gets this. And then from there, let it pass on. In other words, there's an equal accountability. For those of you that know me for any amount of time, maybe, maybe this is your first time. Here's one thing that you know. I am not here to give you my opinion. I refuse to give you my opinion. My opinion means nothing. My viewpoint means nothing. We simply go by the scriptures. Amen? Amen. And I think that that's the best way to do things. Because at the end of the day, guess what? You said you love me. And here's what I know. You're not mad at me. If it rubs you the wrong way, Go to God. Go to God. It, but here's the thing. The scripture says that you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free, right? His word is a lamp unto our feet, the scripture says. So there's good, there's, there's revelation there. Now, Ephesus was the megachurch of its day. It was not only a megachurch in size, but it was a megachurch in, in, in its example of Christianity to the world. In its deeds in its deeds and its diligence to proclaim Christ and in its perseverance for what was right and true. So think about this. We have to wonder what prompted Jesus to speak such strong words to them. Paul's latter letter, or uh, uh, earlier letter to Timothy gives us insight as to what was going on there. Listen to what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3-7. through 7. He says, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia... Stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work. Something stopped happening. He says, which is by faith. Watch this. The goal of this command, in other words, I'm trying to get you back to this place, is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good uh, conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these. What, what, What these is he referring to? Faith, sincere faith, and love. He says, some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they say uh, confident, or what they so confidently affirm. So Paul's intent in this letter is very telling regarding the issues that were amongst the people of Ephesus. He says the goal of this command is love. He says, I'm trying to get you back to that first place. He says, some have departed from these and turned It's a meaningless talk. Now watch this. He's addressing, he's speaking these words, he's writing this letter to the pastor of Ephesus, the same one that Jesus is saying, hey, you need to wake up and pay attention to what I'm telling you. Which tells us something, that what Timothy first received, somewhere along the line, he missed it. He missed it. See, while there are many of us today, like the people of Ephesus, Ephesus, that confidently declare our love for Christ, we have to consider if our love is mere talk. If we're living by sincere faith, and if our lives evidence the advancement of God's work. You got to to chew on that for a moment. I mean, think about this, the book of... 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3 says, hey, you know, uh, you can speak in tongues of angels, you can have gifts of prophecy, you can understand great mysteries and knowledge, you can have faith that moves mountains, you can give all that you possess to the poor and endure great hardships. He says, but if you have not love, you have nothing. You know what that tells us? That you can do very good Christian things (laughs) and not have genuine love. As a matter of fact, Paul says it profits us nothing. Now, it's interesting that of all the issues that Christ addressed to the church in these, in these times, he addresses the issue of love first. There's a the reason why. You know, the scriptures record that the, the great fall of a man named Peter, I'm using this as an example. This guy betrayed Christ upon his arrest when he eventually was led, uh, before he was eventually led to his crucifixion. Peter was a man that swore that he would follow Jesus to the death. He literally swore that, right? He professed supreme allegiance to Christ, and yet when his outward confession and belief counted most, he buckled under the pressure of all those around him, and he denied Christ, and he even openly cursed him. But the love of Christ is not like the love of men, and therefore Christ restored him by addressing the very issue at the heart of his fall. After his resurrection, the Lord Jesus came among the disciples as they followed Peter at his behest to go fishing. He says, guys, I'm going fishing. You want to come with me? Now, at this point in his life, Peter's dejected. He's most likely ashamed and struggling with his denial. I can't, you know, I said I wouldn't do it, and here I did what I said I wouldn't do. I did it anyway. He probably was struggling with guilt and shame and all types of things, and so he goes back to the familiar. He goes back to fishing, but because Christ loved him, he was unwilling to leave him there. You know, that's the great thing about God, that even when we choose what's wrong, even when we reject the truth, the scripture says that, God's, that, that God uh, is patient with all men, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That we, every single day, we have the opportunity to see the truth in God's word, to discover his better ways, and to turn around. Repentance has nothing to do with you having an emotional uh, a roller coaster experience, it has nothing to do with your tears, it has nothing to do with guilt has nothing to do with shame. Repent simply means turn around. That's what it means, right? And so Jesus was unwilling to leave Peter there. In John 21, 15 through 19, we read the words of Jesus as he addresses this issue of the heart in Peter. He said, it says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered and said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, now listen closely to this. This is very important. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, Follow me. Now it's important to note the intent of Jesus in this moment. He was effectually bringing about Peter's restoration for the purpose of ensuring the continuance of the gospel into the world and the establishment of the early church. But for this to take a firm hold in Peter's life and in his heart, for Peter to go in this direction, Jesus had to address the issue of love. The instruction of Jesus to him warrants our attention when Jesus says to him, follow me. Let me tell you why I say that. While Peter had previously devoted his life to Christ outwardly, there was an underlying issue of his wants trumping what Christ wanted. Hear where I'm coming from. So when Jesus tells him, follow me, it's necessary to understand the context for his call for Peter to follow him. In other words, what came before that that qualifies what he's telling him when he says to him, follow him. And here's what Jesus said to him. I'll I'll read it to you again. He says, when you were young, that word young there in the original language doesn't speak of age. It speaks of immaturity. He says, when you were immature, you went where you wanted. But when you grow old, when you mature," You will go where you don't want to go. See, the mark of our love for Christ is not evidenced by what we want for Christ. Listen, it's evidenced by doing what Christ wants in place of our wants. It's very different. I'm going to read that again. The mark of our love for Christ is not evidenced by doing what we want for Christ. Oh, this is what I want to do for Christ. This is my act of service. This is my sacrifice. Listen, if your want isn't Christ's want, what you want isn't worth wanting. It's of no value. It's of no worth. So the mark of our love for Christ is not evidenced by doing what we want for Christ. It's evidenced by doing what Christ wants in place of our wants. And see, like Peter, if we are to truly be the church of Christ, if we are to overcome the pressures of this world, if we are to stand on the truth uncompromisingly, our day-to-day lives must be determined by a love for Christ that leads us to continually prefer and do what he wants above what we want. Let me ask you a question. For personal reflection. Wives, please don't, don't elbow your husband. Husbands, please don't do this where you look at your wife and go, see, yeah, I told you you needed to be in church today. Please don't do that to anyone. Right? But I want you to consider this. Do you consider what God wants when you're following what you want? Do you even take the time to consider is this what God wants? Is this God's best? You might, say, you might be saying, well, yeah, I ask. I just never hear anything. Well, it's in the scriptures. God speaks the language of his word. So to the extent that you're familiar with his word, to that extent, you'll hear the voice of God. You'll know how to discern. The Holy Spirit has something to work with. But we got to think about this. And so I want to give you some practical steps for the next couple of moments that I have here on maintaining your love for Christ. And the first thing I want to say to you is more is less if it draws you away from your first love. I'm going to say that again. More is less if it draws you away from your first love. Hear where I'm coming from. The Church of Ephesus was known for its mighty works of faith. They were at the epicenter of travel and commerce in Asia Minor. They were people, they, they, they were people from all over the world that would travel through there. These, this church excelled in their public witness of Christ. They engaged people throughout the entire region and they were a bustling community of believers. If you look at the scriptures in Paul's writings to, uh, in Ephesians, which was about 10 years after they were founded, the, this church, it's, 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 uh, scholars uh, theorize, uh, historians theorize that this church was anywhere between 10,000 and 30,000 people. That's a big church. That's a big gathering of believers, and they were busy about doing things for Jesus. They were busy about being in their community. They were busy about serving. They were busy about being in church. They were busy about worshiping. They were busy about reading their Bibles. They were busy about talking about Christ, and it all looked good. Paul's writings uh, reveal in Ephesians that they had done well. They appeared devout in their faith. They were well organized, and they were busy in all manners pertaining to the gospel. But despite their ability to do more and advance further than all the churches in their day, it drew them away from their first love. It drew them away from their faith. It drew them away from the purposes of God. And we got to ask this question, how did this happen? I mean, after all, they were so successful. If you look at them just on paper, you would go, man, that's the kind of church we want to be. Listen to 1 John 3, 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Little children, let us not live in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. See, there was love in their words. There was love by their talk. Like, it appeared all love. They even had many deeds to go along with their talk. But listen, deeds and talk are worthless if they don't have a basis in a life personally impacted by the truth. You ever known somebody that was so loving and then later on you found out they were a liar? You get my point? Anyone can feign love. Anyone can feign love. So, so what are we talking about here? What, what, then, then what's, what, how, how did this happen? See, this process begins when we focus on doing more to the extent that Christ becomes less and less important in our lives. He becomes a compartment of our lives. Listen, the scripture says, Paul says we are to speak the truth in love. What I want you to see is this, that truth without love isn't truth. And love without truth isn't love. They must synonymously work in tandem. They have to coexist. Listen, if I love you enough, if I love you enough, then I have to tell you the truth. If I love you enough, then I have to tell you some things that sometimes you're not going to want to hear. But you know, see, a friend, a friend. <laughs> oh, I just love you. I just, you know, I don't want to hurt your feelings. so I just won't say that. Listen to what Jesus says. Keep track with me here. Because there was a problem here. There was a whole lot of talk. There was a whole lot of stuff that they were doing too. But they were deviating from the truth. So before you go on talking, uh, uh, taking on more, right? Let me back up real quick. Let me give you an example of what I mean. here, I believe it's in uh, Matthew chapter 7, somewhere around there. Jesus talks about, he says, uh, wide is the gate that leads to destruction, right? Narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life. And the re- and, I, and I was just having a conversation with someone this weekend, so this is why I, it's probably coming up to mind for me just the other day. When the, when the gate is wide, everything and everyone and all beliefs and everything that everyone says is good fits. There's room for everything. I'll take it all. Right? But how many of you know that when you have so many options and you're stretching yourself that wide, life begins to crumble? Right? And so Jesus says, take the narrow path, the narrow gate. He says, because in that narrow gate, that's where you end up in eternal life. That's where you discover God's way. I'm going to tell you why we should take the narrow gate. Because in the narrow gate, Everyone and everything and every thought and every belief and every norm doesn't fit. There's only room for you and the one that you're following ahead of you. You're starting to get a picture of what I'm talking about here? There's only room for Jesus in front of you and you following after him. But, it's, but that's a hard road. I'm going to tell you why. Because it forces you to consider all these things that I want, what he wants. So before you go on taking on more and saying, yeah, I'll take this, I'll take that, I'll take this, I'll take that, I got room for this, I got room for that. Right? I'm pursuing more for my life. Man, I can't tell you how many people I've seen go after an opportunity, pursue a venture, go for a greater goal without considering if it advances their time, their attention, and their devotion to Christ. Listen, if you're going to take on more, you got to ask yourself this question, is this going to decrease Jesus less in my life? Am, am I going to end up spending more time after what I'm, what I'm starting upon, is my mind, is my attention, is my devotion, is, 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 is everything that I'm devoted to in Christ, is that going to decrease? And I'm going to get busy about doing more. And yeah, you know, it's a great opportunity. So it has to be God. More oftentimes is less, ladies and gentlemen. If it takes from your relationship in Christ, if it takes from your attention and your devotion, you're heading down the wrong path. You know, I... uh, not too long ago, I, 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 I'm going to be honest with you, man, I, I got a lot of stuff going on in life. And recently, not too long ago, I, I, I was just meditating on the word. You know, I always make time for the word, but I was just feeling a little like split, pulled in, in many directions. And, and I said, started talking to the Lord and I'm, look into the Word, and I realized I got to begin to shut some things down. I need to quiet my heart down. I need to cut some things out. And so I told my wife, Hun, for this following week, I'm going to take some time to fast, right? But it's not the food that you get. That That's not the deal, Come on. right? Let's not get super spooky and spiritual here, right? right? right. It's not the fasting. I said, you know what? I'm just going to cut out some things and just kind of realign myself. I cut the TV out, I cut some other things I was doing out, you know, not that they were necessarily bad, it's just that they occupied my mind and my attention, and I I said, you know, I'm not doing these things, I'm not doing that, I'm going to just take some time, I'm going to read, I'm going to pray, I'm just going to meditate on some things, I'm going to write, I'm going to dream a little, I'm going to just envision some things. Can I tell you that after that, right, the last day I said, all right, cool, now I'm going to do this. And I realized something. How great a period of time I had. How much lighter, easier, clearer. I I, I was in life and I said, wait, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. If that was the result at letting that go, then why should I be picking that back up? Can I encourage you with something? Take some time to let go of some things. Some more things. Some of those things that supposedly add value to your life. Cut those things out for a little bit. Quiet your heart. And when you do that, increase your intake of God's word. Listen to some teachings. Read your word. Read some good books. You need some suggestions? I got a bunch for you. But listen, you got, you got to do this. Because more is less if, if it's taking from your love for Christ. that all right? You still love me, right? All right, good, good. Not, not that it mattered, to be honest with you. I'm going to just give you the truth. I'm just saying, you know. Second thing I want to leave you with here is that a love for Christ is not possible without growing to know him. Listen, the Ephesian church was commended by Christ for their commitment to not compromise their knowledge of Christ. He he commended them for discerning false uh, false prophets and withstanding them. It appears that this was a mature church. Though they knew much about Christ, they stopped growing and knowing him. You ever told yourself, I know, I know, I know, only to discover that there's more to know? After everything went wrong and crashed and burned? That's the point here. And so let me give you a piece of advice from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. It says, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Watch this. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. So let me just break this down for you real quick because I'm running out of time. Milk is all a baby wants. I'm relearning that because my granddaughter, all she wants is milk milk, 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 wah, 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 ma, 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 she just wants milk, right, and so in these verses, God is equating the desire to know Christ through his word with, uh, with the one desire a baby has, see, to add anything more than, you desire, uh, than your desire to know Christ above all is a contaminant, it's impure, and so he says, listen, don't contaminate the milk, right, So this, so now watch what's the contaminant. It's anything that promotes malice, that leaves you in deception. It's hypocrisy. Oh yeah, I can do this and do that and do that. It's envy and slander of every kind and so, this speaks of so much more when it talks about craving pure sp- spiritual milk. It is talking about craving the Word of God, but it's speaking of so much more than a desire to read God's Word. It's speaking of coming to know Christ Himself. Let me show you that in verses four and five in the same chapter. He says, As you come to know Him, the living stone, that's the result of craving pure spiritual milk, of not settling for anything else, of just pursuing that. He says, As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so the imagery for us provided here in these verses depicts the importance of our dependence upon Christ. Notice that after you've, we've come to Christ, we are being built into a spiritual house. Something is happening. So let me encourage you with this. Don't get so comfortable in what you know about Christ that you put a stop to the process of knowing him further. You ask any husband, any wife that we just stop at when we first met, that here we are 30 years later, it's not going to work. It doesn't work. See, love is progressive. Love is progressive. It takes a desire to know more and more. The next thing I want to leave you with here quickly is that to love Christ is to love his word. You know, we look at the Bible as a book. Many people look at it that way. It's a book. Some people go, hey, it's the word of God. But do you treat it as if it's God's word? Let me, ask you, let me, let me, let me tell you this. If you did, you would do what it says. So listen to the words of Jesus in John 15, 7 through 10. He says, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain, watch this, in my love. So I want you to see something that to remain in Christ is to remain in his love. And watch this. If you you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. He's talking about his word just as I have kept my father's command and remain in his love. Simply put, here's what Jesus is saying. You cannot love Christ if you do not have a love for his word. You can't know God personally if you're not personal with his word. And so verse 10 affirms this by telling us, if you keep my commands. Most of us, when we hear that, what we're thinking about is just strict obedience. But do you know that that word keep there, it speaks of preserving, guarding, and attending to something within your grasp. So when Jesus says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you know what he's saying? He's saying, if you keep, what I'm giving you from this relationship, if you preserve this truth, if you guard it in your life, if you attend to it, hmm. in essence, Jesus tells us that if we are to love him and be in relationship with him, we must preserve and attend God's word so that we can give careful attention to him. See, the reason why some of us may struggle in our love for Christ is because we're not taking the time to know Him. So let me just encourage you take time to know Christ. Make the time. You know, I know for some of us, we don't get together on Saturdays, right? We we don't. We might going forward. You're my guinea pigs. You didn't know that. But no, let me stop. Let me stop. I'm not saying we're starting Saturday night services, not yet. But you know, for some of you, you, you heard, you saw a video, you saw a post, some, somebody told you, you know, some hey, did you hear? There's no service tomorrow because of the snow. They're doing service tonight. And here's what you did. You said, Man, I had something to do. Let me stop. Let me prioritize. Let me make time. Do you know that we can do that in every area of our lives? But to do that, you have to let go go of one thing to take on another, right? And so that's a valuable thought there because we can all take time. The question is, do we? And when I say take time, I literally mean take time. Take your time back. Take it because it's yours to give away and it's yours to hold on to. It's yours to use and it's yours to misuse. The last thing I want to leave you with here tonight is this. be weary, be wary that your acts of worship do not replace your love for Christ. I'm me say that again. be wary that your acts of worship do not replace your love for Christ. From the church of Ephesus, we see how easy it is to lose sight of our love for Christ by what we do for Christ. There's a reason why the scripture says, don't grow weary in well-doing, because in due season you shall receive your reward. You know how the scripture says that? Because at times you will get weary. It will feel heavy. You won't want to do it. But we have to consider that we've all been here where we do, 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 do. And we miss what Christ is doing. We miss what Christ has done. I mean, if you think about the words of Jesus to the church of Ephesus here's what he's getting at we're supposed to be in a relationship I'm here I'm still here you know even though he held something against them here's what we see that he didn't forsake them he didn't give up on them he was there with them while they were busy loving something else, something more, something different, pursuing He's saying, I'm right here because I love you. But don't miss what I'm trying to do in your life. Don't give your love away to just anyone. This is you and me. Let me tell you something about the love of God, man. I don't know your story, but I know mine. And I know what it is to feel unlovable. I know what it is to feel judged by the church. I know what it is to be told by the church, you're no good for God. Based on my actions, based on my beliefs, based on my behaviors, I've been there. And I used to always feel like, man, you know, this whole Jesus thing, this whole church thing, it's all fake, man. They're so judgmental. They're putting me down. They talk about love, but they they don't love me. They don't treat me with love. They ostracize me based upon my actions, based upon my choices, based upon what I present, based upon what they don't agree with with my life. And I was missing God at the expense of what people were saying and doing. And what I didn't realize was that the solution to my misconceptions, my misunderstanding of God, it wasn't because of the church itself. It's because I said, man, that's more important. and This is more important. And my friends and these women and these clubs and these streets and these things. And I want you to see that love doesn't stop reaching out. It doesn't give up. But you and I can. You and I can. And many times we do that because we're replacing the love of Christ with what we do for God or what we do for ourselves. And so listen to Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8 as we stand and come to a close. It says, But whatever gains, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything lost a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Listen, Paul was a man of great accomplishments prior to coming to Christ. He had the esteem of men. He had studied the scriptures under the tutelage of some of the greatest scholars in his day. He did much for the sake of his religious beliefs, but then he encountered Christ. And at that point, Paul says that everything else was garbage. Garbage in light of the importance of gaining Christ more day by day. About a year, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I—we we sold our home and we bought another home, and it's amazing how much stuff you accumulate over the years. And we start going through things, and and I'm I'm putting things because I know how my wife is, you know, and we're, we're kind of the same, but she's better at it. So She's like, nope, that goes here. Put all those there. Everything's orderly. Everything's organized. I love that stuff. I just hate doing it, right? So everything's there. And I'm like, well, we can keep this. She goes, nope, that's garbage. What about this? Nope, that's garbage. Well, what if th- that's garbage? Let me tell you why I share that with you. Because as we prepared to move, we came to realize how much useless things we had accumulated over time. And if you are to make a shift in your life and get back to the place of love for Christ, let me tell you what time it is. It's time to identify and discard the garbage that's keeping you from turning back to him. I'm turning back to him. Let me ask you a question. Holding on to any excess weight, it's garbage. Any wayward mindsets, that conflict with the truth in God's Word, and you find yourself conflicted and pulled from one to another, and and you feel like a ping-pong ball, and you're trying to serve God, you're trying to seek God, you're trying to please God, but you you can't do it on your own. It's not about what you do by your behavior alone. It's an issue of the heart. know me. Just stick with me. Listen, I'm not asking you to improve upon your also. I'm not even asking you to change yourself. If it depended on what you change for God, then guess what? You don't need them. Just change. It all comes down to this one simple thing. Getting back to the first thing we did. Jesus, I love you. Look, this is where I'm at. These are my struggles. This is where my head is at. This is what I believe, but I believe in you. Lord, help me in my unbelief. Help me in this place where I'm struggling. Because he loves you. He's faithful to lift you up. Again.